pickaxe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good afternoon and welcome to One Life Left at GDC 2018. It's Thursday and this is our podcast slash Twitch show. Uh, so we are One Life Left and we're here with Gamma Sutra, today represented by Alex. Hi, yeah, I'm Chris Graff, couldn't be here today, so I'm his uh, inferior. Do we know why he couldn't be here today? Um, I don't know. Because I saw him at a party at 3.30am carrying a jug of water around and swigging from him. He had a lot of biscuits on him as well. Water. Think it was water. Mm. Oh, we had a good time last night, didn't we? Uh, I had a great day yesterday. The mm-hmm. whole uh, whole day was very good. I mean, fantastic guests on the show. Mm. Amazing guests on the show, which is only going to be not bettered, but equaled okay. today. It is, a, it is a line to walk, isn't <laughs> it, 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 that thing? It really can't is. say better, can't say worse. We just plateau with guests. We Keep do. the same quality high level high level Uh, we should explain that we are a radio show back in London on Resonance 104.4 FM we've been doing that for 12 years and you would think we were better at it by now but we're still here well hey we've got an added camera here now and and we've been doing a uh, Twitch show at GDC for the last three years and a radio show before that for like maybe 82 82. or so like loads Uh, we come out here every year and we talk to brilliant games industry guests uh, and uh, we try and hunt for exclusives. We've never found one, have we? No, we haven't. All right. Um, so we're one life left. You're yeah. Gama Sutra. Yeah. I'm Steve and Alex. In a second, we're going to have two brilliant guests. So one of our guests, uh, I'm not going to tell you which one, just yeah. said, "Ah, oh, you tricked me with the cameras. I'm not pretty today." When I woke up today, yeah. uh, I had a seven out of ten stamp on my neck which thankfully I just caught just before I came up here. I was like, mm, that should go. Um, seven out of 10 is a one life left catchphrase for 12 years. We've reviewed video games uh, and every single game we've given seven, seven out, out of 10. Seven out of 10. They all deserve them. Yeah, solid seven out of 10. Very good score. Right, two guests on the couch. Can you introduce yourselves uh, to Twitch and to the radio? Uh, explain a bit about who you are and what you do. Sure, uh, I'm Robbie on Storm. I'm a tools designer at Guerrilla at the moment. I, what I do is I design tools so they're not annoying to use, basically. So if you're working for eight hours a day and using a tool, that you're not every five minutes constantly going, it doesn't do the, the uh, that kind of thing, you know, solving those kind of problems. All right, cool. Uh, I'm Joel. I uh, run a studio called Ludosity. We're here this year with a, a fighting game called Slap City. Slap City. <gasps> Slap okay. City. Yeah. All right, we'll come back to that in a second. You're not talking this year, are you? Uh, no. no. No, but you are, Robin. Yes. I uh, did a micro-talk on Monday about uh, gizmos in tools. Mm-hmm. So, like, hey, like, you just have, like, three arrows, and a lot of people go, like, hey, that's simple. You drag things around with them. Like, how hard can it be to design a, a gizmo? Turn out, turns out there's a lot to it. Okay. Like, a lot of different tools do things in a lot of different ways. Like, for example, in Unreal 3ds Max and Maya, you can hold the modifier button and drag the gizmo to duplicate something really easily. In Unity, you can't do that. So you have to like duplicate first and then drag something out. I'm not calling out Unity or anything like that. I'm just saying like, there's a difference there. Why is there a difference? Can we learn from this as a group? Like, can we learn it? Can we look at each other's tools and kind of go, 
you know, what are the differences here and why are they different? Can we make things a little bit more whole for all of us so people can switch between tools and not be annoyed by different hotkeys, for example? Is the answer that we can? Possibly. Okay. I mean, I'm, it's nuanced. Again, it's nuanced. I'm hoping, like for the last three years, I've been giving talks about this, and I'm basically <laughs> hoping that people kind of look at tool design and kind of go, hey, this is a good thing that we should definitely do. Uh, I'm also hosting a two roundtables. I did one yesterday about tool design. Mm -hmm. And in there were a lot of people from a lot of studios basically going, really, we need tool designer? I'm sitting here and I'm here constantly. And afterwards, basically, I think everyone went, yeah, we kind of need a person to do that kind of thing <laughs> to save everyone time. So hey, that's great. And that's uh, you've got one other roundtable. Uh, yeah, one more roundtable today about like tool production uh, systems. So let's say like let's say your tools are having problems, and people give you like a thousand tickets. Mm -hmm. How do you organize those things so you can actually do them in time? Uh -huh. That's a lot of things. How do you do that? How do you yeah? How how do people do that? Because every company has the same problems, but everyone has to solve them in different ways. Because then you're all making different games. You're from different countries, different cultures, different production systems. So just sit down and talk about it, and just hash out like, hey, how can we do this in a good way? Robin, I don't want you to talk mess about any uh, engine tool. Right? So I want to know instead: Do you have a favorite tool? What is your What is your most cherished, most loved tool? It's gonna be terrible. Uh, my favorite uh, tool is Hammer, simply for the 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 ease of blocking out a level. Mm -hmm. You can really quickly just like get a level going. But the problems with it is that they're always super blocky. Because while the grid really works really well and you can place things really easily, the grid's just a grid. Mm -hmm. So whatever you're gonna build easily is gonna be blocky. So while I love that tool, I also know there's a lot to improve there. Mm. I like blocks. I like blocky <laughs> levels. I like blocky design. I like just real chunky, chunky pixels. So that sounds fantastic. Uh, Joel, what's your favorite tool? Uh, I'm going to have to go with Unity, actually, uh, just because it's what I use. It's a popular um, choice. You're, I mean, you're a bit mainstream, <laughs> Joel. The, the main reason is the amount of um, platforms it supports. So that's, that's probably it. So you're not uh, talking at the conference, you're here with a game. Tell us I'm here with a game. game. So it's called Slap City, it's a platform fighter. Uh, we just came out on Early Access mm -hmm. uh, on Steam. Uh, it's going pretty well. Uh, so, I mean, we're here showing it, taking feedback, mm -hmm. uh, just trying to build a community. What are some of the challenges of showing a game at GDC? Well, GDC is for uh, other developers. So it's a different kind of feedback. Uh, it's really, really valuable, actually. So, it's really is it sometimes fun. a bit too real? Are you sometimes like, hey, well, not hey. for me. <laughs> not for me. Uh, I like it when it gets real. So that's fine. Uh, yeah, I mean, tough feedback is is really valuable. Yeah. What's your one line pitch for the game? Uh, it's better than Smash. <laughs> oh, that's strong. Mm. I just came up with that now. So right. I might regret <laughs> saying that. So I, I'm. Um, I kind of stumbled upon Ludosity's games mm -hmm. because we've been friends on Facebook for a yeah. while, but um, to my shame, I've never played any of your games. And then last year, I was I was really thirsting after playing a card game, oh, yeah. so I just searched on Steam, and pretty much every card game uh, was of a similar type. It was yeah. free to play, yeah. and then hook you in, and then sell you card packs, which was not what I wanted. I found Card City nice. Yeah, uh, it's a different take on it. It's, uh more of an adventure game, really. Mm -hmm. So if you think of a, like in JRPG, for oh. example, you have the characters and the adventure and the battles. So in this game, the battles are with cards. And everyone in this world is obsessed with the card game. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was it's re really cool. We just made it on the side. And I mean, I, I like, genuinely loved it. It was one of my favorite <coughs> games of oh. last year. It was perfect for what I was looking for. And I really mm -hmm. enjoyed the world and the sense of humor, the writing I thought was exceptional. Thank you. But what I found really, really interesting is, and um, didn't expect, your characters and games kind of all exist in the same yes. world, a ludosity uh, universe. Same thing with Slap City, yeah. uh, we're picking characters from our other games and put it in the game. How do you think that kind of serves <coughs> each game? Because I'm not a fighting game fan, but I'm tempted to play that now I've got used to the characters in Car City Nights. We, I don't know, we just, I mean... It's easier for us to just reuse this. Nah, uh -huh. that's a bad answer. <laughs> uh, it's fun to it's fun to build that universe um, and just sort of try to merge them together somehow. Mm -hmm. Post fact, maybe, but uh, right. I mean, I was, I was I was thinking there's probably a very very clever business plan behind this. Of course, and you're like 
it's just asset reuse. That's, <laughs> that's the that's the idea. Uh, Robin, have you been able to go around, play any games, give any feedback to uh, developers? Uh, sadly, no. Just like constantly talking to tools about developers. So <laughs> I like doing that thing, just talking to all of the developers and kind of hearing like, hey. If you try to do this thing, is that easy or hard to do in your tools? And then sometimes you hear like, "This is absolutely terrible, actually." And like, you know, comparing those kinds of things. So, while I'm not playing games, I'm using a lot of tools and talking to people about tools, which I know can sound boring, but I really get a lot of enjoyment out of it. <laughs> I was about to say we were talking before the show about how GDC, unlike uh, PAX or an E3, there's a show floor that's dominated by middleware and engine mm-hmm. companies. And so for some people that might be a little bit of a, of a strange journey, but uh, do you have a really good time just like walking from booth to booth and just really like critiquing each one? Uh, I wouldn't say critiquing each one right in front of people's faces, but definitely looking at it and seeing what are they doing differently and, and what could they be doing differently? Like mm-hmm. are there things that I could point at another tool and tell them like, hey, this tool does that thing really well, maybe you can look at it. Because most of the time people go, oh, I had no idea that existed. You know, you only have so much time in a day, so you can't sure. know all the tools in the universe. So. Yeah, it's. Um, I think all the other uh, people we've had on the show so far have been kind of uh, users of tools rather than mm. creator of tools. It's very easy for, um, I think, our, our listeners and our viewers to see the satisfaction that comes out of, you know, oh, I've built this creative work and then it exists and people can compliment me on the creative work and I feel like an author. Mm-hmm. Where does your satisfaction as a tools creator come from? Seeing people happy using tools. Mm-hmm. Like, I've, I've been a game and level designer in the past, like, worked at a company, owned a company, did, did all those kinds of things, and it's actually through that and through using all those tools that didn't exactly fit the things that I wanted to do that I realized I want to fix this, not for myself, but for everyone else as well. Mm-hmm. If I can make those other people happy doing those things, that helps. And in the end, it also helps me make, you know, like, better games for users out there. Like, an example that I, I try to use always is uh, Skyrim, for example. Like, Skyrim... People know it as sort of like a buggy kind of game, like there's things happening, things popping, things like slightly above the ground or inside the ground. Now, no level designer wants that to happen. No developer goes like, hey, I want this to be wrong. Mm. But if the tools does not, do not allow you to easily see those things or to easily like fix those things, those problems will happen. So while those people are working really, really hard, they get from the users to hear all these things like, oh, it doesn't really look right, it doesn't really look right. And I think fixing that from the tools point of view is much better because then instead of having 100 bugs to solve, you solve it from the core, make sure those bugs don't appear. Mm. So I really love doing that. Like having both those sides of satisfaction is great. Joe, what do you find most sat- satisfying about game development? Well, sort of the same seeing users mm. enjoy it. I mean, the players, it's, uh, getting the feedback, uh, especially in person, that's awesome. Right, I think, I think that's something we're missing is radio people yeah. and I'm not sure we would see any degree of no. satisfaction like just people sadly shaking their heads which is you know maybe a good job that's that we fun. are this distant yeah. that's what uh, Twitch chat is for right right yeah <laughs> muted um, so we're approaching kind of the end of GDC now we've got mm-hmm. one one solid day left of GDC uh, what's been your biggest lesson from this week that I'm I'm uh an old man now <laughs> and I can't drink as heavily I think everyone feels old by Thursday yeah. yeah Robin have you made any discoveries or seen anything that's inspired you uh, yes I'm, I'm starting to see that, see that uh, bigger companies are starting to notice that doing things with tools and making tools better is a good investment you know because like you can can convince users like hey your tool should be better and everyone goes sure yeah of course but convincing someone in upper management like we actually need to put money into doing this kind of thing because it can save money afterwards seems to be a thing that people are actually like assuming now like yes that's true that's a thing we can do Mm -hmm. so really happy to see that and is there anything you want to fit in in this last day and a bit of GDC I actually want to go visit the uh, Muir Woods and look at large Whoa. trees. Oh. That's what I want to do. That's a good okay. thing to fit. Looking at trees yeah. is a solid answer. <laughs> Robin? Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to sound really boring. Just have more meetings with more tools people. Okay. Like I have some more lined up. I, I want to talk to more people about tools. I like <laughs> this strategy, though. You're very clear about what you want from GDC. You're doing it. You're having a yeah. great time. Yeah. Uh, you're really learning a lot. I think this is fantastic. I've never heard the word tools so many times <laughs> in such a short space of time. Um, thank you both so much for coming on the show. Thank Good you. luck with the rest of the week. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having thank us. Cheers. All right. Welcome back to One Life Left at GDC 2018. It's day what, Chris? 
day 368 <laughs> of it. It's been just over a year. This has been the longest GDC. <laughs> I think we say that every year. It's good to see you again, Chris. Last time I saw you was 3.30 a.m. Uh, in a hotel yeah. room. Yeah. Carrying around a jug of water. I was the most popular person at that party. Um, walking in with a gallon of crystal geyser. Uh, we should introduce our new guest because it's not just you on the sofa uh, mm-hmm. right now. We've been joined by Natalie Lawhead. Hello, Natalie. Hello. Would it be possible for you to explain to our listeners and viewers a little bit about what you do? I uh, am an artist and I make games that I, art that people call games. I started as a net art uh, a net artist in the late '90s, early 2000s, and it's kind of been something I've been doing as a passion since. The last project is called Everything is Going to Be Okay, so yeah. That feels like nice sentiment for this Thursday morning at GDC. Everything is going to be okay. Yeah. But we were just chatting about it before and the game you're saying is uh, maybe not as comforting as the title. Might it's something you have to keep telling yourself while you play it. <laughs> <laughs> I tell myself constantly. Could you explain a little bit about the, the game? Uh, it's kind of a commentary on struggle, survival, depression, PTSD, and how our society views people that struggle and also fails them, but it's presented in a way that it's comical and kind of satirical because it is kind of ridiculous, and uh, as you play, on the surface it looks like dark comedy, but as you play it, it kind of starts unraveling these social issues, and a lot of people have said that it's been very healing for them or helped them through dark times now, so yeah, it's kind of like in that vein. How does that make you feel when people tell you that it's helped help them out? It, it's, it feels good. It feels like I, it, I made this thinking that, you know, it's got to break some of that shame society puts on even mm-hmm. speaking about it. So, I mean, to me, it indicates that I did a little bit of a good job there. Yeah, and like the look of it is incredible. It's I mean I don't know if anyone has seen it out there, but it's it's like an angry Lisa Frank fan. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. And I, I, I just wanna know how you I mean, we were talking about tools earlier, we got really into tools. Like what did you use to build this game? Uh, it's all my own stuff. Uh, it's JavaScript, ActionScript, and C++ for extending. It's packaged in Air, as Air because uh, Air allows for both JavaScript and ActionScript really mm-hmm. well. It's really it's uh, very custom, like the pixely distortion glitch art is shaders that I wrote. It's you know I take archival footage and I run it through my shaders then, and it makes this lo- landscape-like looking things. So yeah. As an artist, uh, what makes you want to work inside games as a medium? I don't know. It's a it's a hard question to answer because my first th- project mm. way back. It was like interactive poetry, so it really beautiful, very re- reactive. People were like, I've never seen anything like it, this is amazing. And then pe- people picked it up and started calling it a game. I was so pissed off work <laughs> of being a game, how dare you? And like, because it, it was really interesting to see the pushback then that, like, what is this? What the fuck is this? Like, it, the confusion of it being called a game that it brings in. So. I, I guess I kind of warmed up to the idea, well, games could be, I guess, you know, it's okay, I don't need to be so snobby, and yeah, but I believe in the medium for how deep and nuanced and emotionally evocative it can be just because you're interacting with something, you're part of it, and you're responsible for what's happening, so you're part of the art, you're not just looking or reading, but you're you're in it, so yeah. So you you were speaking on um, about alternative paths into indie development in this GDC, right? What was that a panel? Yeah, with a few people. Um, it was for alternative ways of being successful, and my part of my my take on that was that. Uh, art's value is beyond money and that we should not put a financial value on art because asking an artist how much money you're making out of this it completely misunderstands the purpose of art because art is for social change um, expressing sentiments that are not entertainment so yeah my, my, it was kind of anti-capitalist in a way but it, my point was that we assert humanity through art so you can't really put a traditional price on that and the true value is humanity and how many people you touched and inspired and helped with your art and has there been any feedback from people about what you were about those things that you were talking about 
Um, a, lot, a lot of people liked it. A few people walked out. I guess they were expecting financial success, <laughs> which I'm not. Like, that's so. I'm so counter towards that. Yeah. That's funny. I was uh, I was at a talk this week. Um, Zach Gage gave a talk about how to how to make a game that you can just like grasp at a glance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a great talk, and it was all about how to make your game so that people will buy it or click on it or download it. And at the very end, he said, "I don't want to do this." I just want to make fun, weird art. Mm-hmm. But apparently, you have to be good at getting your game in front of people if you want it to be effective. Mm. And uh, that was like both beautiful and kind of sad at the same time. What does a week like this uh, give to you as an artist? Um, I get to put my games in front of people and see their reaction and feedback. And I, I, I don't know. Like for me, I'm, my the value I get is seeing how it touches people and inspires people and all that. It's it's been really kind of healing for me too because uh, I get attacked very heavily from gamers because how, whatever it, you know that mess. But uh, so seeing now people liking it and seeing how much it's meant to them has been like, oh my god, it matters, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank um, you for having we all me. Yeah, thank you. Yes, yeah. it's great to meet you. Uh, we are One Life Left with Gamma Sutra at GDC 2018. There are sirens going off outside. <laughs> yeah. What have we done? <laughs> I don't know. They found out like, yeah. what we did last night. No, it's, uh, it's all good. We've got another fantastic guest on the sofa with us, Bennett. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah? Um, how's your week been? Uh, it's been a lot of late nights. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm bearing up and very little uh, sleep at the You're moment. You're looking remarkably bright yeah oh really you look yeah. put together and yeah. uh, it's <laughs> fake <laughs> it's all makeup could you um, maybe explain to our viewers and listeners back in london who might not know who on earth you are who uh, on earth you are <laughs> i'm a d game developer um i guess for many years i was best known for a web game called quop uh about running uh awkwardly down a, a running track uh, and I made Sports Friends with some of my good friends, a compendium of multiplayer games, and most, most recently, Getting Over It with Bennett Foddy. Uh, and I also teach uh, people to make video games at NYU. That's good. Uh, I saw uh, Getting Over It at the... Um, oh, gosh. What, where, is, where are all the games? <laughs> <laughs> the IGF Pavilion? There we go. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, and I was watching... I didn't get a chance to step in and play it, but I was watching some uh, women in front of me playing it and, and having a great time. Mm-hmm. And it feels like your games do that very well. They... Spectatable games. Yes. Yeah. I think that's probably a habit I fell into when I was making multiplayer games for live events. Uh, starting with Baby Castles in, in New York City uh, and uh, Wild Rumpus in London uh, and then various other events uh, around, the, around the country and around the world. Um, you, when you're making a multiplayer game for those sorts of live event environments, most of the people can't play, so you're, you're really worried about making it something that you can enjoy when you're standing back waiting in line to get to play a game. And I think that's started to infect my single-player games as well. <laughs> Which has really helped them because Spectatable is a real thing that loads of game developers shoot for now. Right. Well, I guess in the kind of context of Let's Plays and, and streams, and it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's become much more of a, a major thing. But I wouldn't say that I'm sort of engineering with it in mind when I'm doing my design process. It's more like I think it is just a, a habit that has crept in. So can you tell us a little bit about getting over it with Bennett Foddy and what your design which, process which one, uh, one some All right, award, spoilers, Chris. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, getting over it is uh, it's a number of things to me. It's In some ways, it's a sequel to, to Quop. It's, uh, it, I'm, I'm thinking of it as my most ever on-brand game. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a game that's inspired by some recent games, uh, Sybil by Nina Freeman and uh, The Beginner's Guide by, by Debbie Reardon, in the sense that it's a game about putting myself in, in the game to kind of humanize myself in the eyes of the player and to kind of be in dialogue with the player in a certain way. And it's also a game about another game. Uh, it's about the 2002 freeware game Sexy Hiking by, uh, by uh, Jazuo, the mysterious Czech developer. Um, so it's, it's sort of a, a lot of different things at the same time to me. Uh, and it's, it's also a kind of a study in making people absolutely enraged with frustration when they when they play the game. What have you learned from your studies in making people enraged? Uh, I've learned how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. 
And this is this is uh, I mean to describe the game, to describe the mechanics of mm. the game. Mm. You are you play a man in a pot. Yes, in a cauldron. Cauldron. Yes. Uh, with a sledgehammer. Some kind of tool mixture of a sledgehammer and a Yosemite hammer, like a piton hammer. And, and using that uh, equipment, mm. you have to climb a mountain. Yes. And what sounds like a simple premise does not become a simple task. That's that's right. I mean, uh, there is, I guess, at the heart of of it is a, a very video gamey idea, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, you know was something I was exploring in uh, an earlier game of mine, uh, Pole Riders, where people uh, two two people try to uh, use pole vault poles mm-hmm. to kick a ball and to knock each other off their poles. And the thing that those two games have in common is that we take a video game constraint, which is that the player cannot rotate. Mm-hmm. And another second video game constraint, which is they're almost infinitely strong. And then you can do things which a real human being could never do. I've tried playing uh, Getting Over It with, without that constraint. Uh, well, for in, you've cosplayed it in life. <laughs> no, well, I'm sure I know how that would go because I've simulated on the computer. If you take away the sort of uh, the the fantasy constraints of the situation, uh, a man in a cauldron with a hammer can only push himself over and then haplessly kind of lie right. on the floor, kind of flailing, <laughs> trying to get back up. <laughs> it's not really a way, a way to go climbing, but. If you just say that he can't rotate, suddenly it becomes a thing where you can you can do almost uh, anything. You can fly through the air and kind of pogo up with your with your hammer and and uh, shimmy along poles and so on. So it's kind of an exploration of that mechanic. Why, why is why was that the analogy for you or the metaphor for representing you you in a pot with a sledgehammer? No, it's not me in a pot. <laughs> okay, it's you in a pot. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, I, and I, I so what, so why me in the pot? So I mean, it's 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 I'm 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 setting you up for a for a, what I think is a an interesting challenge and a, a challenge with a particular emotional dynamic, mm-hmm. uh, which is climbing an extremely high mountain with no gating or checkpoints whatsoever. And I'm it's 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 with Bennett Foddy in the sense I'm with you. Mm-hmm. I'm there to offer words of encouragement and condolence and some reflections on the nature of the task. Um, and uh, eventually to kind of uh, discuss uh, what we what we must have in common if you've stuck with my game for six hours and you get all the way uh, to, towards the end it becomes a kind of a different commentary but yes it's more like I'm I'm with you it's you in the pot and I made the man in the pot uh, the what we're given as the default character in in uh, uh, Adobe Fuse uh, modeling which is like the most default way to get a 3D character you get you go to get this uh, this piece of software and it's like don't change anything that's the that's the guy uh, you know it says I mean it says a lot that the guy looks like that but uh, but but that's yeah that's who it is so yeah. it's a self insertion yeah. I suppose the default the default human being yeah he's in the or maybe you know maybe you're the mouse cursor or something yeah. like that I mean it maybe it's something like that but it's definitely yes it's not so important who the person in the pot is mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's that you it's, it's that you're in control of the mouse and that I'm with you in some sense would you describe it as a funny game um I, I definitely think people have drawn hilarity from it uh I personally have enjoyed watching people on streams fall a long way down and (laughs) feel some irritation Uh, but I don't think there is comedy in the narrative of the game Mm. I don't think that's really there it is absurd though Maybe there's comedy and absurdity. I mean, there, that is something that I, I, mean, I grew up with with, uh, with British games, of course, being in Australia where we're on the same TV standard and uh, predominantly British games, which I think were very, very heavily influenced by uh, surrealist comedians mm. uh, through, the, through the 80s and, and even the 90s. So, so that's, that was my background as a, as a gamer. For me, like I've always thought your work is when people talk about funny games mm. right like most people's instinct is to go oh I find Monkey Island really funny because there are good gags in it right right, right. but I've never seen people uh, react to Monkey Island in the same way as I've seen them react to you know Quop, Gurp or right. um, getting over it with proper physical belly laughs of frustration right. Right. and 
anger, but also I got myself into this situation. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what I find particularly interesting about getting over it is, is for me, the best comedy has a sort of backbone of philosophy as well in it, a truth, which I'm not sure there is a, a greater truth in Quop, right? <laughs> there's, there, there is a payoff, there's a hurdle, and there's, you know, but for getting over it, that mixture of comedy and philosophy elevates it, I think. Yeah, I think that uh, comedy is uh, directly adjacent to, uh, to frustration mm-hmm. in a way. I mean, it's definitely a thing that comedians do is, is you, they build up anticipation for a punchline. Right. And it's a, it's a sense that you feel in your gut almost exactly like a, like a upwelling of frustration. And you know, and, and I think that, that, that comedy can often be adjacent to philosophy as well. Observational uh, humor is, is very, can be very deep and very uh, philosophical. So, you know, I think those, those things are all not too far away from each other culturally. Um, you know, I, I do think games uh, benefit from being playful. So I'll lean into that if it seems like it's there to, to do in a game. Mm. Uh, and I do think that that maybe that's unusual, right? Maybe maybe games overwhelmingly kind of self-serious. And uh, to close, uh, as Chris mentioned earlier, you won an award last yes. year. Yes. How, um, how did that feel? How did it feel? <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I was extremely flattered and pleased. Uh-huh. I was absolutely certain when I made this game that a uh, very small handful... Mm-hmm of a very small handful of people who uh, who are subscri- monthly subscribers to, it's not that small, but it's a relatively small uh, set of people who are subscribers to the Humble Monthly who commission the game. Uh, I was sure that a very small subset of those people would be interested in playing the game. And I was 100% sure that IGF judges, who of course have to play dozens <laughs> of games yeah. in a very short space of time and try to make a kind of intelligent judgment about them, would just be annoyed that I was asking them to do this thing um, so it's it's it was very flattering above everything else that that people were willing to give it the time to appreciate it because it's not maybe something that you can you can uh, draw uh, appreciation of in in uh, in five minutes so uh, yeah I was I was just incredibly gratified by that what happened to the award where is it now I think it's in the in the post. Uh, oh, really? They give you a little. They give you a little sniff of it on the stage. <laughs> uh, they gave me enough time to recoil in horror at how ugly it is, and then uh, and then they send it to you. Thank you, thankfully. Right. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much for coming on. The thanks show. very much. Thanks. Uh, thanks everybody. Thanks. Welcome back to One Life Left with Gama Sutra at GDC. Very good. We are finally, with one more show to go after this, sorting out our branding. (laughs) We're getting there, aren't we? Uh, We're a radio show on Residence 104.4 FM back in London. Sometimes a Twitch stream as well. Uh, Although this year we did talk about playing video games on the Twitch stream uh, at the same time as doing the radio show. We realised that wouldn't work well on radio, but we thought maybe it'd be nice to have some ambient Mm. video game noises in the background. Position as Residence FM... Uh, you know, very very strong arts radio. Uh, so it's yeah. art. Basically, any noise you make <laughs> is art. Um, but then we realise it's actually kind of rude to our guests if you come on and we're just facing the TV. Yeah. Going, yeah so uh, tell us more about yourself, Robin. Yeah. <laughs> So I do get uh, distracted by uh, anything moving in the background. Yeah. So, it's, yeah. Uh, so we'll try and stay better. very still uh, <laughs> while you introduce yourself. All right, yeah. Hi, I'm uh, Robin Baumgarten, and I make weird hardware games. Um, you sh- I used to do it as a hobby, and now I do it full-time. And I live in London as well. And uh, yeah, I'm here with a new game I'm building, and I'm going to tell you about it. I think, <laughs> <a> bit, yeah. <laughs> So, um, prior to this, you made a game called Line Wobbler, which I think a lot of people who listen to the radio station uh, back in London will be familiar with, even if they're not gamers, because they'll have seen it around the place. That's right, yeah. So that was basically my big break into the... I don't know if it's really a scene. uh, Kind of forging a little niche uh, and uh, discovering that it's actually a thing you can do and can do full-time. So Lime Wobbler is a thing I built like three and a half years ago now, and it started actually at a, as a game jam game. Mm-hmm. But then I uh, showed it at the London Indies um, pub meeting, and uh, 
people responded well to it and said, oh yeah, you should take this further. And I, so I showed it at uh, Alt Control GDC three years ago and Indicate and uh, it won an award there, a game design award, which I'm very pleased with. And, <laughs> and I showed it at Maze. And so it, I, I realized by the feedback I got from there that it was actually a thing that is good. And I think I should maybe kind of follow up so I kind of put all my effort behind it. And uh, yeah, so I've been kind of making things ever since. And I most recently saw it as a Christmas tree. That's right, yeah. So that was a cool uh, little uh, uh, experiment, basically, into into bigger installations. Um, so we worked with Games London, and they uh, contacted me, uh, or I contacted them, actually, about something unrelated. Mm. And they said, ah, oh, yeah, actually, tomorrow we're going to meet up with the Network Rail people, and uh, we're going to have something interactive. Or I think they were thinking about, like, a little booth mm-hmm. for... The uh, London Games Festival, which is coming up in April, basically um, next week or in two weeks, um, and uh, so they pres- prepared a li- big presentation, and the network rail people saw it, and there was line wall in it as well. And the network rail people went, "Ah, oh, this looks like a Christmas tree decoration." <laughs> and it just so happens that we don't have a Christmas tree yet for King's Cross Station, and uh, that basically set the ball rolling, and it just, everything happened really quickly because I was like already into November then and by December it needed to be up and we didn't know I mean I didn't, haven't done any metal work and London Games people neither so I was like oh <laughs> shit how do we do this and uh, it, was, uh, it came together fairly quickly and uh, but it, it went well I think so um, there were some issues with the setup so it's like this is massive six meter tall structure and we need to kind of set it up at 2am in the morning when the station was closed yeah. be done by 5 when the first trains arrive <laughs> And I just barely managed to do it, and uh, we actually forgot to connect one cable on the top. Oh. And we only noticed in the end it was too late to take it down again. So only one half of the spiral was working, um, because it was a setup as a two-player thing, so like two single players, so like um, a double helix mm-hmm. uh, of, of line wobbler. Uh-huh. Um, so only the first half was working for, for half of the duration, and then we needed to... Organized. It's just all very bureaucratic. At uh, King's Cross Station, you need to watch a half an hour video when you first contract for them about mm-hmm. the safety culture and, you know, like, uh, if you see anything suspicious, report it. And, uh, uh, but yeah, we did that. And then. Uh, so your, your line wobbler journey was from a pub in London yes. to a huge Christmas tree. Exactly. And yeah. now you've got, you've got a new game, which you're showing here as well. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit. Right. About so that? this is kind of uh, meant as a spiritual successor to Line Wobbler. Okay. Um, so it's called Wobble Garden, mm-hmm. and it still has springs, and it still has LEDs. So I don't know if people know about Line Wobbler. It's a one-dimensional dungeon crawler. So it was like one line of LEDs and a spring joystick in the front. So I've taken that concept and said, oh, okay, maybe I'll experiment more because I really like the feedback these springs give. So they're kind of very tactile. And so I made it like a two-dimensional thing. So it's like um, a lot of springs in a grid are surrounded by LED rings. And, and these, these springs that are like doorstops, They're right? actually doorstop springs, yeah. yeah. So I kind of added touch sensitivity to them, so you get mm-hmm. capacitive touch. And I have a little vibration sensors inside, so you can touch them and fling them. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, I arranged in a grid, 36 springs for now. And I built it, I wanted to be it... To be modular, so it's going to be like a big wall installation eventually. I haven't played the game yet. Mm. Um, I want to get out there and check it out. Um, but as a kid, like flipping those things was one of the most satisfying <laughs> right. thing that you could do. It's an interestingly uh, specific cultural phenomenon as well. Like in Germany, we don't have those, and mm. almost nobody knows what I'm talking about when I say doorstop of springs. Mm. Uh, so I just say springs uh, because otherwise it's too much to explain. Do you have to import them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I mean, I live in London now, so yeah. that's easy. Uh, have, they're everywhere, everywhere in London. <laughs> everywhere. For well, I buy them in bulk now from Amazon. <laughs> it's like these bags of 100 doorstopper springs. <laughs> what does this guy make? <laughs> <laughs> it looks a bit suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so it's interesting because like, I built it with a hardware first and uh, with the sensors, basically. So that's kind of my design philosophy. So build, or starting with like weird interactions, like the springs or other sensors, and then building up from there and seeing if there's a game in, in, in this interaction, if there's something interesting. So that means often there isn't, right? So it's an experiment, right? So I make a lot of experiments where I try things and it doesn't quite work. Um, with Line Wobbler it worked out really well so the game immediately appeared uh, once we had the hardware put together so that was really nice and I've been kind of chasing this this uh, feeling ever since so with uh, Wobble Garden it's, uh, it wasn't quite as easy so I had made the hardware first and I use like Alt Control now as, an, as a platform as an experiment to see what the audience sees so I've only made like a few small experiments so like a little finger walking game where you hop around and then one interactive demo where you just kind of play around with the springs 
Um, but a lot of people have come to me and said, hey, this could be cool as a musical instrument mm. or as a rhythm game or, you know, it's kind of a ambient uh, little exploratory thing, like Proteus, almost a kind of magical. Mm. Um, but I don't know anything about audio <clears throat> myself. So I'm now collaborating with a lot of audio designers like Martin Qualle, who's a really cool friend of mine. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully going forward, I have... Uh, a lot of things to show on it, but right now it's fairly bare bones. Yeah. What's the reaction been like on the show floor? It's been very good. I mean, it's a very visually appealing thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, definitely uh, a lot of eye candy right now. And, uh, <laughs> You're I mean, giving out glasses? Yeah, I've you? been giving out these weird diffraction glasses. Um, mm-hmm. Some people know them as, as fireworks glasses. Okay. Um, they have these patterns on its surface, so it makes it all kind of yeah. weird rainbowy, uh, very trippy, in, in fact. Uh, um, but it's been a good success. I use them as business cards now, so it's kind of a <laughs> neat little giveaway. Um, but it's been it's been a good success. I mean, I feel like I still need to apologize for that the games are very simple on it mm. because they're all early prototypes. But I can definitely see a way forward now, and I, people are interested to work on it as well. So I'm going to open it up to other developers. Uh, and you were also speaking on a panel this week. That's right. Yeah, I was speaking on Tuesday on the uh, alternative past and indie panel, and. Uh, was like an interesting collection of people talking about their games and how they uh, live of them or they don't or some people supported by Patreon other people have to make ends meet with working on normal jobs uh, and making this as a hobby and I was talking about how I can uh, live off hardware games now I mean or how I'm getting there so it's mostly about Linewobler because that's been uh, fairly successful so I'm renting it out to museums festivals and so on and they do pay artist fees so it's a because you said you, so this started off as a hobby. Yes. Which is now your job. That's right, yeah. So what what are the biggest challenges? I mean, financially, obviously, that's got to be one of the, the major things. But what are the other challenges from going hobby into this is what I do? Right. I mean, obviously, I, I have no idea about the business side of things for this yet. So it's kind of tricky to figure out, you know, for example, if I sell it, how much should I charge? Um, what is the maintenance like? You know, if it's... A hardware thing, it, it breaks all the time. Mm. So like the first, you know, ten iterations are just like improving the strengths of components and making, hiding all the connectors because kids will inevitably <laughs> tear them apart. Yeah. And uh, then, uh, yeah, figuring out things like, uh, do I need a certification for electrical safety? You know, what does it entail? And mm. where do I produce these things? So right now, I'm all hand making them still. Like I only have like um, maybe twenty to thirty copies of the game that are floating around somewhere. Um, but if I want to scale it up, I need to find a way to make them, and that's what I'm still figuring out. So probably need to f- collaborate with uh, a, a business person because I'm not that business-minded. I'd like to make things, but for this, probably necessary. Or some people who make doors so you can use their stoppers. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So <laughs> I actually did go to a spring factory for line warbler because the wow. door stopper springs turn out to be too weak. Uh-huh. So if kids play it or drunk people, they just pull it and then it it bends and stays bent you know um so i went to the sprint factory in, in west london and they were very confused at first because they make, like, <laughs> you know, for, for doors or cars and uh but they got uh, behind it and they said oh yeah that's like i need your best spring exactly <laughs> and uh, now i know a lot about like different steels and the thicknesses and the ratios of all these things <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show today yeah of uh, course excited to play it right, like yeah. uh, please come on the show in London uh, when we're, we're all back over there yeah of course and, yeah uh, would be good yeah we can wobble together yes <laughs> great thank you thank you we are one life left at GDC 2018 with Gamma Sutra yeah and we are joined by two brand new guests on the sofa who are both looking very perky this morning. <laughs> Hi guys, we're joined by uh, Frank and Vincent. Uh, Vincent, would you like to introduce yourself to our viewers and listeners? Sure. Um, my name is Vincent Diamante. I'm the audio director over at That Game Company. I'm a music composer, sound designer, general audio guy. And uh, wow, I feel like I've been going to GDC and working in this game industry for more than a decade. I feel old. Yeah. General general gaming guy, is that general with a capital G and it's like a military position? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Oh, is that, that's a, like at, within that game company. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a it, general. <laughs> yeah. The, actually, uh, one of my teachers back when I was studying games and interactive media was uh, this guy, Bernie DeCoven, and he mm-hmm. called himself General Fun. 
Really? General fun? General fun. fun. Interesting. Not specific fun. But that wasn't the military kind of general. He was just a general <laughs> type of fun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm Frank. Hi. Can you introduce yourself? I can introduce myself. I'm Frank Cifaldi. Uh, I run the Video Game History Foundation. We're a nonprofit to preserve the history of video games. I also have sort of a shadow commercial self where I work at a company called Digital Eclipse where we do uh, classic game compilations with sort of a uh, criterion collection style treatment with a lot of bonus uh, art and doohickeys. So... Your work uh, centers around taking video games from some time ago and yeah. restoring them and preserving them. I guess there is a common theme between right. the two, right? Yeah. But um, yeah, it's almost like a different way of handling that for mm-hmm. the two different approaches, right? So for, for Digital Eclipse, it's um, taking a game from the past and uh, not just like barfing it out you know as a product like here just play it you'll understand you know it's 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 being like no these things are old and they were a part of their time so we want to contextualize them and make you understand them a little bit more and appreciate them you know in the same way that um if you've ever seen citizen kane Mm -hmm. citizen kane's a fun movie uh actually on his own it it works right but if you actually understand the background of the story with william randolph hearst with orson welles and with their you know the feud that even came after it Mm -hmm. like you come to appreciate citizen kane as as a work much more than you do just watching it and that's what we like doing uh with games do you do you ever find that uh with older games there are there are things in there which maybe you wouldn't include in a game now and how absolutely how do you deal with that um, it hasn't come up yet for us where it's like there's a racist caricature in, in Mega Man like there's not <laughs> I don't think um, so it hasn't come up yet um, in a theoretical situation right where it's we're the publisher right and we control the messaging um, I think we would do the same thing that's on like if, if anyone on this couch has ever read the Looney Tunes DVDs uh, there's a splash right before it, and I think they even had Whoopi Goldberg record an intro where, where they're like, we're presenting all of that stuff here because to get rid of it would be like pretending it never happened, and that's not okay. Um, so if we were in charge of a game, and, and have Whoopi Goldberg. we would have Whoopi Goldberg come on and explain <laughs> that that uh, pretending the history never happened is, is actually a terrible idea. And does the same go for glitches and faults in these Oh, games? yeah, yeah. So you restore those. Well, we don't really have to restore them. We just run them right, as okay. they were. You know, like sure. we, we intentionally uh, are against the idea, at least with these products, mm-hmm. of taking an old game and, like, fixing it. Yeah. Um, we, we intentionally want the games to play exactly as they did. Um... You know, and it's not just like, it's just the way you remember. It's like, well, there's so many instances where I think, and you know the NES's limitations, at least vaguely, where you might even be able to... I was pointing to Vince for you guys listening. Um, <laughs> where where, where you, you might uh, you might be able to, to, to even argue artistic intent sometimes with these glitches or, or limitations. You know, there's spots in Mega Man where, the, where everything slows down because there's a lot of things on screen because of, that's how the NES... You know, would sometimes handle a lot of things on screen, and it's theoretically possible that they put all those things on the screen, knowing it would slow down, and they wanted that effect right there. There's an argument saying maybe it should be really smooth. You know, so we we just try to leave everything alone and and leave it as it was, warts and all, because uh, I I don't think it's okay for me to make any of those decisions artistically. That like, no, they would have rather done this. Vince, you're a um what, what do we call you, General Corporal Audio? <laughs> Captain, uh, Captain, uh, do you find uh, these days, you've been doing this for a while, like, do you ever have to work within the limitations of a system when producing audio for a game? Um, yeah, it's really fun to work within those limitations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my first jobs in the games industry was actually working on cell phones before the iPhone. Right. And, and it's actually easy to forget that wow, there were cell phones, there were cell phone games back then, and not just Snake and all that stuff. Uh, but we tried to make soundtracks for those things. We tried to make some really good games with really good music. Um, mostly failed. <laughs> no, you, had, you had a really good one though. You had a Castlevania game that you worked that, on on cell phones. That wasn't bad. I like to yeah. think the soundtrack for that was pretty good, but 
you know, compared to what came after that with the iPhone, and also compared to the handheld systems at the time, it, it wasn't really that you didn't great. You just like press six to go forward. Exactly. Four to back up, <laughs> yeah. Two Five to jump. jump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was fun working within those limitations, and and the limitations are great. Uh, but those limitations exist now. Yes. For the games that you're working on. What what are those limitations? Um, a lot of them actually have to do with uh, the type of player that we have now. Mm-hmm. So we're working on mobile platforms. So there are so many games are on mobile platforms, so many games are played on the web now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you're dealing with the mindset that the player is in, or the environment that the player is in. You know, They're not on a couch, they're not in front of their big TV. Even though TVs are better than ever, sound systems are better than ever, mm-hmm. uh, now we have to compete with the noise of standing in line for the ATM, mm-hmm. or CVS, or, or whatever. And that is going to be a very difficult hurdle to pass. We haven't really quite figured that out. And a lot of people are trying, making different sorts of game for a different type of player that is not 100% focused on the game that's in front of them. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there are also technical limitations as well. I think a lot of that has to do with the a general prejudice against audio. General stuff. prejudice. It's so militaristic here. <laughs> No, it, you, you still have to fight with everyone else for other parts of the memory, the hard drive, the Blu-ray disc. Uh, we can record audio in super high fidelity now in 7.1, but the producers don't want us to. <laughs> it, 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 and I can understand that. It's always going to be a compromise, but there's still very much this attitude of the graphics are what sell. The graphics are so connected to what's going on with the marketing campaign, and uh, audio will get short shifts. Like, we're working on, on Gama Sutra, and, and seeing what some audio people who work in games say, it's interesting to hear you say that there's, like, this... Uh, general prejudice is what you said this like kind of inclination to uh, deprioritize that and I get that vibe from a lot of audio people um, mm-hmm. Vince how big is the chip on your shoulder <laughs> <laughs> your, your audio chip <laughs> no it's it's pretty big I, I do feel very lucky to be at a place that has immense respect for audio especially since mm-hmm. uh, you know over the last few games been, the audio has elevated mm-hmm. the game and, absolutely and they recognize it and they give me a lot of leeway to do stuff and sometimes really crazy stuff uh, but it, it's still a very difficult thing in, in this place right now and I think it's not just the technology again it's the way that consumers are working these days if, if you're playing a game um, you know you'll have other music playing in the background uh, Look at the streamers that are online. You know, there's this whole thing with streaming on, on Twitch, on YouTube, wherever. And okay, let's turn down all of the audio, and we want to hear all the crazy banter here. We want to hear these personalities talk about everything that's going on. Maybe it's actually just them talking about their personal life as opposed to things that are going on in the game. Um, Whatever it is, we're not hearing the actual audio track that is helping to inform them about the game situation or increase the immersion in that particular game environment. It's it's still tough. It's still tough. How do you think it changes a game if you put audio more at the forefront of things? Ooh, I think that there's a lot of potential there. Uh, we're seeing it in a couple places, like uh, Amazon and uh, Alexa games. They actually had a talk earlier this week at GDC about making games for that platform, and there are people doing it. Uh, some of them are story-based games, linear narratives. Some of them are more along the lines of choose your own adventures. Some of them are actually trying to do things with with more complex systems and a little bit of economy and managing who you are as a person within this world, a more complex adventure game. And that's actually really exciting. Uh, One of the things that I've experienced, not just as a gamer, but just in terms of the way I handle my life these days and the type of entertainment that I consume, I'm listening to so many podcasts, I'm listening to a lot of books these days, and I'm really looking forward to listening to even more games in the future. 
Frank, you were talking this week at GDC. I was not talking. You were not talking this week. I mean, I was was talking (laughs) to people, but not at people. So what have you been doing at the conference? Uh, Mostly representing the foundation, the the nonprofit that I run, and having meetings with old developers to talk about, you know, you know, I met with a guy who who ran a UK studio in the mm-hmm. '80s and '90s, and he's like, "I've I've got all of the material, the, the, all, all of the you know the source and some unreleased games and documents and things like that. I don't own it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the, the person, mm-hmm. the people who paid us own it. Yeah. I don't know what to do with that. And so it's, you know, it's an ongoing challenge for not just me, for any like archival institution to 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 sort of explain like, well. There's 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 no legal solution for that, but there's things you can do. You can make it someone else's problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of the most common thing. Just donate it to a museum, let them figure yeah. it out. Um, but a lot of meetings, uh, 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 you know, of that nature, or like there was an NBA Jam post mortem uh, this morning that I went to because uh, I know that Mark Turmel, the designer. Mm-hmm. Um, he often talks about how they made a special version of the game with Michael Jordan in it okay. for Michael Jordan. Wow. Um, and that he has that build of the game uh, on EPROMs. And he mentions that usually. Yeah. And I made sure I was there this morning because I knew that it would come up so that I could go up to him mm-hmm. at the end of the talk and be like, hi, it's literally my job to help <laughs> you uh, back that up. So you should talk to me. And he's like, yeah, for sure. You know, I could send these out, see what's on them. Yeah. So, um, in the in other mediums, uh, mm-hmm. there's there's countless examples of lost art, oh, yeah. like art mm-hmm. that no longer exists. I, I mean, I think the example that comes quickest to mind for me is that every few years in the UK, there's a great deal of excitement because someone has found on a dusty reel somewhere Doctor an episode Who. of Doctor Who, yeah. right? Like, it's always Doctor Who. But there are other things as well. Well, have... Doctor Who's the one that people care about. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. They also find dusty things that they go with the hell. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Are there any examples of, um, of you know, great lost video games? I don't know about great, you oh, know, well, because it's, sure. it's the games that are lost, you know, were never usually available to the public so I don't know about great but um, there's plenty of examples of lost material for sure and and especially if you focus more on the older days uh, like I tend to do as a specialty um, because you know if you're making a game on the NES or whatever mm-hmm. it's basically a game after a month or two yeah. and if you're making a game on the Xbox 360 it's sort of half a game after like three years <laughs> you know? um, and so a lot a lot of the games that didn't come out for whatever reason from the old days are usually fairly complete mm-hmm. games and um, I focus a lot on the the Nintendo Entertainment System mm-hmm. specifically because uh, a lot of people were making games for the thing mm-hmm. it was still pretty cheap to make them um, and people were making so much money doing it and also Nintendo had a limitation where you could only sell five a year as a publisher right so a publisher like a Capcom would be like okay let's make ten and sell the best five and then you know shelve the other five and so there's a lot of completed games from that era that are lost is there anything specifically that you're hunting for or chasing down rumors um the the one that comes to mind we actually just got a copy of uh which is that Nintendo, before they did it for the Super Nintendo, they, they actually did a version of SimCity for the regular okay. NES, and they did that yeah. one first. And that one, um, it's particularly fascinating as a work because, well, first of all, it's lost Nintendo mm-hmm. work, which, you know, yeah. with, in archival, it's like save everything because you never know what's going to be important. Mm-hmm. We know that people are going to think Nintendo's important mm-hmm. in 50 years. Like, we already did. It's our Disney, no matter what. <laughs> um, but with SimCity in particular, it's super interesting because um, that was a rare situation where Nintendo licensed a Western video game. Mm. That's already kind of weird, right? Um, but if you actually go back and read all the interviews that have been done with Will Wright, where Nintendo's mentioned, which I have, um, you, you know, I came to find out that they actually flew him to Kyoto for a week where he worked on making the new features that would be in the Nintendo versions. And it's like, okay, this game's actually fascinating because it's a collaboration between Will Wright and Shigeru Miyamoto. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that happened. Yeah. And this 8-bit Nintendo version, at a glance, you know, it's like, oh, it's a Super Nintendo one, but lesser. But it actually has some ideas that didn't make the cut cool. to the Super Nintendo. So it's like, 
a rough draft of the only collaboration between Will Wright and Shigeru Miyamoto. Which like, is a, that's a cool. Yeah, that's, a <laughs> yeah, that's a thing worth examining and, and really looking at. So. Okay, cool. cool. Um, but thank you both so much for coming on the show, and we'll see you around. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I love the switch when we, uh, we, we, we have a guest on now. We're incredibly polite to them. And then as soon as they're off the, as soon as off the sofa, we're like, Shut up and we're trying to do a radio show. Goodness me. Uh, so that's another show. It's been super good again. Yeah. Another fantastic. How many guests? Was it eight? Something eight, like uh, that. Eight-ish guests. Like, like phenomenal. Um, I can't believe how well the show and this week has gone so far. I think we're setting us selves up for a colossal fall tomorrow yeah do you know what i think it's going to be all right uh we're going to be uh broadcasting tomorrow late afternoon so we've got the day to get ourselves in a good position for one oh, final fantastic uh, show very optimistic i am very optimistic <laughs> and I, I believe we will live up to it uh but yeah this has been uh, a great show today yeah thank you so much for watching or listening if you're listening on resonance 104.4 fm or watching on the garment Sutra twitch stream we will see you tomorrow. Bye.